Welcome to the Creative Industry Insight Podcast, a podcast that looks at various roles in the creative world. I'm your host, Bobby. Today's guest, cinematographer Lachlan Mill, joins us to talk about his work on Minari. Please be warned, there are heavy spoilers in this episode. So make yourself comfortable and pour yourself a glass of mountain water as we jump into the conversation with Lachlan. Thanks for joining me today, Lockie. Pleasure, Bob. Thanks for having me. No, it's uh, great. I'm really excited when you got back to me and when you were like, yeah, I could do it next week. I was a bit uh, taken aback. So I haven't seen it in uh, Minari yet. And, uh, oh, right. Oh, you still haven't seen it? Or you I've have? seen it. I've seen it. But when I originally oh. contacted you, you, um, you said, yeah, I'm That's free right. straight away. I and I was it, just yeah. like, oh, <laughs> I didn't expect this. <laughs> I have, uh, you know, my screen is not for another couple of weeks now. And yeah. I uh, was a bit taken aback. <laughs> well, I'm kind of in this prep shoot, prep shoot mode at the moment. So I get kind of like short periods of time where I'm around. So I just kind of jump on a bit of stuff as soon as I can. But at least you've seen it. I mean, that should make this interview a bit easier. Oh, yeah. But like imagine if like, I, 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 I'm sure somebody has probably done this, that they've probably sat down with someone and done an interview without just, actually watching it. And just Googled like... questions that other interviewers asked. Yeah, or they've just like read the Wikipedia like summary. Yeah, it's like, yeah. You know, this this one scene where's this that the other, and they're just like, yeah, incredible, isn't it? It's like, yeah, blew me away. Um, <laughs> Must like, have been done, surely. Yeah, but then again, like I bet you people always steal questions from each other, or even put over like twisted it differently to be like, oh, this is like my question, or or mm. you probably will answer some of the questions that might have already been asked. Mm. But hopefully, there are some stuff that. To take you off guard and mm. uh, help you be a different sort of that you haven't answered yet so I guess the best yeah. place to really start is how did the project come about so we shot Minari in I think it was June July or thereabouts of 2019 so I was in Australia doing a Paramount film in for the first half of the year it was four or five months or so in Queensland with the same production team as Stranger Things um, and it was a monster movie called Love and Monsters and I was I think it was the last day it was the last day when we were shooting and, and I just kept getting these calls from from my agent and then ignoring them because I was operating I always operate a camera so I was on the wheels we we're doing this crane shot and I was operating the wheels and I had my phone on silent it just kept going and going and going and so, so something was obviously up and obviously with the time difference and things anyway so I, 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 um, I answered it and he says in this really well, I really like him a lot he says in this really like droll monotone voice is like Lachlan do not go to the rap party do not go to dinner with anybody don't do anything like that just go home and read this fucking script and I said okay okay no worries and that script was Minari because uh, he set up an interview with me with with um the wonderful Isaac Chung the next day so so that's what I did I went home and read it and spoke to Isaac the next day and it turns out that which I didn't know at the time that I was the first cinematographer that he'd spoken to I was right at the very get-go of um, them looking at crewing the show up and we got on immediately well straight away, you know, because that first call with the director, I, I always find fascinating because it's not, for me anyway, it's not so much about how you want to shoot the film necessarily or what, you know what I mean? Like it's, you just, I think you're just sounding each other out in the sense that are you going to be able to go through the uphills and downhills, you know, of, of feature filmmaking where there is, it's just day-to-day problem solving 
and people being able to react to the unforeseen, regardless of how much you may or may not have spoken about it, particularly with this project that was, you know, a very modest budget and didn't have that many shoot days in it with a child actor, minor actor who was in, you know, 90 something percent of all the scenes and, you know, the, the, the logistical scheduling things that, that would fall out as a result of that, et cetera. So, you know, there was a lot of, um, on paper, a lot of kind of difficulties to this project, but I just, I loved how, how kind of calm and kind of humble he was in the sense that I, I knew that we were, we were going to be able to work through whatever might come at us from the get-go. So thankfully he chose me and, and we ended up having a wonderful experience. Because you guys are going to work so closely together, I guess it's like, are you ready mm. to be in the trenches with me? Are you going to be yeah. sort of, are we going to be all right? Where are we going to be in this foxhole of uh, filmmaking and creating something? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I, Cause I always like to, to, yeah, I, I think that first call is, is really just sussing each other out as human beings, you know, and then everything comes after that, you know, obviously, obviously there's some talk about, you know, I always like to ask what kind of film is it, you know, like, cause I, I've read it and I've got an interpretation of it, but, but there might be a subtext or a, or a, metaphorical motivation that that might not read quite so easily to me that I'm interested to hear a director explain to me, you know, what's the subtext of whatever we're doing? You know, is this film about love? Is it about family? Is it about hate? Is it about revenge? You know what I mean? That sort of stuff, because it helps me kind of form a, a, a better understanding of how we might shoot it and how we might cover certain scenes, what the lighting might be, maybe what the tone of the music might be, you know, which is kind of, you know, that's what's telling you how to feel a lot of the times when you're watching something. So I always, I, I kind of ask a few of those questions, but yeah, essentially it's like, are we going to be able to go through all this and still have a beer at the end of the day? <laughs> you, <laughs> when you talk about the sort of tone of the film and because the film is so personal to the director, did you find like trying to understand the story that he wanted to tell? Was it a case mm. of when you actually had these meetings later on and to sort of, I guess you have those sort of heart-to-heart conversations to actually understand mm-hmm. what the director wants to say and what mm. he wants to show in his film. Was it mm. a case of like sitting down, getting like a bottle of whiskey, sitting down and talking about like both your childhoods? You understand, you know, like, oh yeah, when I was, you know, 10, we used to go to this camp. We used to do this. Mm. It was like, yeah, my, or like you, you, mm-hmm. you talk about your grandparents and, mm-hmm. you know, oh yeah, my grandparents did this. Like, so did mine. It's like, mm. oh yeah, but mine did that. Mm. Did you ever have those sort of conversations and those sort of moments? We, yeah, we did. We did. We had a couple of conversations like that. Um, from the get-go, Isaac was quite clear that he didn't necessarily want it to be strictly autobiographical. He didn't didn't necessarily want everything to be like, you know, one for one lifted out of his own personal experiences. There's definitely moments throughout the film that, that did happen to him, but he also wanted to keep the story interesting and lighter in certain areas or darker in certain areas than perhaps it might've been for him. So there was definitely some creative license within certain specific situations that he found himself in as a young, as a young kid. But, but one thing I remember speaking to him early was about, you know, like, is this a, is this a film about memories or is it, you know, because I, I, you know, I, my grandparents have obviously passed away now, but I, I remember, you know, like when you're a kid, you don't necessarily remember whole scenes of things, you know, like your parents might explain, you remember, you, you know, you were five and it was that time we went to the beach and then we came home and then you're all wet. And so you jumped in the shower or whatever it is. But my recollection of those things are like small little snapshot bits. Like I might remember the carpet when, when my feet were wet that I walked into my grandma's house on, do you know what I mean? Like, because your, your childish brain hasn't been able to retain all of this, the details of, 
of that situation, whereas an adult can tell you sort of verbatim. So I, I kind of wanted to photographically approach it that way a little bit as well, if that makes sense. So not necessarily be so literal with things and be a little suggestive and a bit more dreamlike, I guess, if that makes sense. Because I, I totally understand as well what you mean about looking at snapshots when you're younger. Because now mm. you've got me thinking a little bit about certain things in my, like if I mm. went to my grand's house as well, like mm. one thing that really stood out was always she would be like, I'll make chips. I'll always make you chips. Yeah. And it's like, okay, but that's not, that's not, <laughs> that's not, uh, <laughs> it's like in, in, my parents obviously never encouraged that because they're like, he has to eat healthily. But then there's also yeah. there's all, um, like my aunt has a story about like when she was younger as well. And there's one that sticks out and in Polish is, is called Chipsy. And mm-hmm. she got chased by three dogs and she ran to my gran and said, oh, Chipsy, Chipsy, which is like three dogs. Mm. But my gran mm. interpreted it as like that she wants chips and she got a beating <laughs> for it because it was like, you can't have that. But it's those, it's those, as you said, like there's always those moments that you think about and yeah, you use your experiences from like your grandparents as well when you're yeah. uh, creating those snapshots, especially like in the trailer with mm. is when you have the the boy and the grandma and certain moments. Mm-hmm. I think there's one mm-hmm. that's there's certain things where when they first start having friction in terms of like, mm-hmm. oh, gra- you know, grandma smells like Korea or mm-hmm. here you go, have the mountain water that I peed in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. When you're creating those as well, did you use your experiences from your life to sort of try capture that those sort of moments? I remember like one of the biggest triggers of deja vu for me is smells, you know, like, and I remember that like particularly with my grandma's house and maybe it's the same for you if she was making chips all the time. It's like, you know what that house smells like, Do you know, what the furniture that's a little dusty that's, you know, because my grandfather's been passed away for 15 years now back when I was seeing her. And, and so maybe she doesn't have, as much of a need to keep the house as clean and tidy as, you know, maybe it might've been in some previous time. I don't know, but so, you, you know, so then they all kind of layer up. So that was something that we spoke about as well. And particularly for that, you know, grandma smells like Korea. That's kind of one of those, cause you know, that's something that you remember. You kind of hold on to that one thing, even though the moment itself might not be that clear that, you know, other senses kind of take over sometimes and that becomes the memory. When grandma smells like Korea reminds me of my gran is when you have these uh, cake packets like for mm. for like baking cakes and for some mm-hmm. reason that smell of that like packet always reminds me of her which is weird because yeah. I don't I don't remember ever her baking cakes it was always my mum but it was just one of mm. those things the use of space in the film is interest is interesting to see because a lot of it is shot at wide angles so you mm-hmm. like as the viewer you feel like you're kind of watching this family and seeing like how stuff plays out was that Mm -hmm. something that was that a Mm. an idea that was conceived earlier on and how did that idea sort of gestate you're right we one of the big things that that Isaac and I spoke about how we wanted to photograph the film in the first place was was to try and be as as honest as possible if that makes sense like I I I I I pitched him that it doesn't feel like a sh- like a photographically showy film, and it, and I don't think it should be. And I think that if we do that, it will kind of take away from it a little bit. And by that, I mean, you know, it's not cranes and you know massive dolly shots and and long, complicated, technical, you know, nicely executed things. I don't think that that's the tone of the film. Um, and to your point, I, I wanted it to be as wide as possible because it's such a wonderful cast, and I love I love it when when actors are able to. For starters, we wanted to kind of cover each scene in, in, as, in as little coverage as we possibly can, if that made sense. And, and one of the reasons for that was to try and 
and help dictate the pacing of the film editorially. And so, you know, I have this big thing that if you don't shoot it, you can't use it. So like if we, we, and Isaac was really on board for that as well. We both, it's one of the reasons why I just enjoyed the experience so much because our attitude, our aesthetics towards how we wanted to cover the film was, was pretty much in sync all the time. And so take the caravan, for example, where you might have five people in there in one room talking. We would try and be as wide as we possibly could for most of the time to allow for a little bit of improvisation, but also so that, you know, I love it when people step on each other's, when actors step on each other's lines a little bit, it doesn't feel quite so scripted. You know, people maybe cut people off a little bit more. There's a little bit of overlap, which the sound department are always like, are you going to do coverage of this? Because then we need to get that thing clean. But we'd like, no, 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 we're going to keep this all at a wide shot because it feels more real. You know, it feels more observational and it feels more doc- documentary in- instead of filmmaking, if that makes sense. So we didn't want to have to influence, I didn't want to influence photographically anything that was happening. I wanted it to be as simple as possible, but still still in, in a beautiful, considered way, but but not really just coverage for coverage's sake. Do you think, like, does that make your job easier knowing that you have to just do not multiple shots or anything complicated, but just those more wider shot does it make it harder for you to like those sort of scenes as well it can do it can do for sure i mean it makes it easier i guess in the sense that you're not quite so you're not as conscious of of things like screen direction as maybe you normally would because you know you're not necessarily gonna gonna come in and you're not looking you're not worried you're not when you're blocking it you're not thinking about the close-up of that person and they're standing in front of that gray wall at that point and that might not be the most photographically interesting thing so why don't we change the blocking and bring them over here and put them next to that light or that window or something like that so we didn't really have to think about that too much only on a few occasions we did but but it also makes it harder from a lighting side of things for sure particularly because we um we wanted to shoot spherical 239 so the frame would be twice as wide as it is high primarily for a lot of the exterior scenes that we're going to do a lot of the landscape work so once we took that into the trailer, it meant that all the lighting that I would do would either have to be practical because the fr- we would almost always be seeing the walls in the trailer or from above. And my only apprehension about lighting from above, from above is it always it always feels a little bit like a, like a studio film. You know, if you have lights in impossible places. So I really tried to motivate everything as practically as possible. I built a bunch of LEDs underneath, you know, certain parts of the trailer so that we could pick out darker spots there and have it all dimmable and have it you know color temperatures a little bit weird like they always were in the mid 80s you know it's like there'd be a, like a cool white fluoro in the in the kitchen but the bathroom would have like this iridescent orange lamp you know it didn't feel like any there was any kind of like correlation between you know like we'll just get one color bulb and fill it through the house it's like it's whatever the house comes with and that'll be fine you know so we played around with that a little bit as well but there's good and there's there's good and easy and difficult things about covering it that way but the biggest thing i love about it is just how it's just the observational nature of it, if that makes sense. Because the film primarily sort of one location is like that, the caravan and then the uh, field as well. But then you also mm-hmm. have various places like the church, the hospital mm-hmm. and the uh, shop. But we want to sort of go back to sort of shot choices as well, because in the film, there's not that many close ups. And at first mm. I thought the close ups, they only showed close ups when people were lying. But once certain scenes folded out in my mind, it didn't. I realised it was just more for like emotional impact. I've read that you said that these these moments uh, needed to be earned and that you didn't want to sort of overuse them. But what I'm curious as well, mm-hmm. because these are very emotional moments, how do you make sure that the mm-hmm. camera doesn't get in the way or is too distracting for like an actor to sort of like perform some of these scenes? 
It's true. It's a good question. One one of the things that I guess part of this comes from doing so much work with with kids over the years is I try and I try and not use much filtration in front of the lens for work like that because it just turns it into a mirror and it can be really distracting. So I tend to do it with you know atmosphere or lookup tables or lenses as far as like the, the the choice of optics. You know, if you know something a little softer or older or something like that instead of using filtration at the front. But, but um, I always, I always try to because I, I always operate as well. I always try and talk to the actors beforehand and and say this is where I'd like to be. Is that going to be okay with you? And I always get the actor that they're acting with that's tight and eyeline to me and it's physically close to me as, as they possibly can as well. So it kind of feels like they're part of you know they're in, they're as close as I am to the event. So there's a couple of little things like that, but it's great. Actors will always sort of sometimes if they know that they're going to go, go you're going to go for coverage, they will save their performance for that stuff as well. So they're prepared. It's just part and parcel of the job. But but there's a few little tricks that you can do to kind of help help both parties out. I'm always curious to see what how an actor reacts like with such a close-up and then having like the camera <laughs> in the face, but then also being able to sort of cry and uh, yes. perform those moments because there are those some of the hardest hitting moments is one with the conversation in the bath bathtub where Stephen Ian, you know, he can't, he can't move his arms because he's worked so hard and they're having mm. that sort of moment. And he's just there to see that mm. like physically and emotionally sort of broken man about like what's going on mm-hmm. and everything in his family. Because as well, when we're moving to more outside work, he used a lot of the natural light rather than the lights to sort of shoot those scenes. What problems did come across from using natural light and did you ever feel like sometimes you were just chasing light to make sure that scenes matched to what you were shooting before? A couple of times that happened, yeah. And most of the time, I mean, the difficult thing about about the schedule of how we had to shoot that film was we shot it in peak summer where there's 14 hours worth of daylight. So, And we weren't budgeted to shoot 14-hour days. And so most of the time we would either pick a morning or an afternoon and favour the work that way, you know, depending on what scene and which way the sun was rising and setting and we'd fudge dawn for dusk all the time. As far as the as how we shot the exterior stuff, no, we didn't light any of it and I didn't diffuse any of it. I think maybe once or twice they used a little bit of a little bit of fill, but that was about it. I remember we were shooting the first time we shot with Will Patton, which is the his, the first scene we shot with him was when he's uh, delivering the tractor to Jacob in the in the first first act of the film and he and I hadn't seen them either that the props department had given him these massive coke bottle glasses that were like store-bought because it was that was the nature of the film you know on a, on a different project you'd be able to get anti-reflective glasses and maybe they kind of gimbal a little bit or something to try and help us out and they'd be flatter normally as well so that they don't tend to reflect everything but I remember looking at them and I could see the sky to the ground at his feet when I was looking at them so like immediately I was like well there's not very much I could do with that but it was actually fine because I didn't want to diffuse any of that stuff anyway. I wanted it to feel a little bit more harsh and top lit and, and arid and kind of relentless because that's what kind of heat it was there. And, and I think for one, one man trying to, trying to overcome, you know, the, the brutality of this location, I thought that we'd lean into that a little bit as well. So we kind of kept that simple from a story side of things as well to kind of help make it feel as hot as possible. I used a slightly different lookup table, which was a little bit more bleached out just had a little bit more warmth and a little bit of colour taken out of it. So just feel, uh, again, it's just so it felt just so it's slightly hotter than some of the other work. But, yeah, scheduling-wise, I really tried to, you know, if there was any downtime, I mean, a lot of the transitional shots we we did were 
when we would go from like a like a half, like a split day, we'd go from like a half day to night transition. And there's there's that period, that beautiful period of, of evening where it's it's too dark for day, but it's too light for night. And so I would go take the camera off. Me and the camera guys would just run off and just shoot a bunch of B-roll sort of work, some through trees or clouds or insects or something, just build up a bit of a library of that stuff to be able to pepper through the film editorially when it when it warranted it. I just want to sort of go back as well because something popped in my head when you're talking about operating the when you're operating the camera during mm-hmm. filming because I know sometimes there's some DOPs who just sit stand by Video Village and watch it through the screen and then there's like yourself for watching it through the eyepiece. Is there sort of moments where you you can't believe what you're watching in terms of just like the, having having the scene unfold and being mm. literally like the first person to watch it on screen? Yeah, it's um, one of the great joys of being an operator, I think, for sure. I, I love it. I love it. It's very hard to not operate on things. The only Stranger Things is the only show that I've done where I where I don't operate, but that's simply just because of the, the scale of it and the amount of planning and logistics and stuff. So, And it's actually easier for me to not operate on that. But everything else, I've operated a camera. And for, for that sole reason that you're talking about, it's, it is wonderful. And particularly because I do a lot of handheld work and, I, and it's great to be able to react to actors when they do as well. I like the freedom of being able to, be handheld in you know especially intimate moments like that as well but but yeah because I always wear contacts I always wear headsets you know when I'm operating as well so I can hear what everybody's saying so it does it feels like once you put your eye on the eyepiece and you've got contacts of the audio going through it you're at the movies right <laughs> a little private show sort of thing as well when because it's a film that has it two languages it's both in English and Korean talking about movement of a camera did you ever find it difficult if there were scenes where they're speaking Korean, you, you know, understand how the camera should move? Or was mm. it a case of just following what the actor's performance was? It was a little bit of both. And and I kind of learnt the latter as the film went on, if that makes sense, because I'd only ever read the script in English, obviously, but so much of it is in Korean, as you pointed out. And particularly there's a lot of kind of, there's quite a few kind of live argument, you know, heated conversations where we wanted to keep them as kind of one shotish sort of, if you like, you know, and, and sometimes that was me operating handheld and bouncing between the two people in a language that I didn't quite understand. So I'd, I'd speak to the actors or I'd speak to, um, to Isaac and we kind of isolate. I, I, I always knew what the tone of the scene was, but I'd have to wait for certain, certain words that I'd remember and then that would that would motivate me to move say from Jacob to Monica or vice versa but uh that was a real education because it's interesting I I never operated in anything where I didn't understand what was being said most of the time but it was interesting what other instincts kind of come to the forefront as a result of that you know to your point you're, you're looking at actors movements and little hints that they might give you about what they're going to do before they've done it and you anticipate those. And I guess that's a combination of luck and experience. But um, it was a real it was a real education for me in a really great, interesting way to be able to operate in a language that I didn't 100% understand. Yeah, because I can imagine that there's those moments where well, you, you've probably already blocked it and discussed it, but even those sort of moments, mm. there's certain key moments where you think, should I move it there? Should I not move it there? But Yeah, and the performance is awesome and you don't want to stuff it up. Yeah, because if it, especially like a film, you should yeah. go on, go on. Sorry, no, no, no. Sorry, I was just saying. It's like I remember there were situations where we'd get deep into this take. I'm like, this is really good. This is going to be the one we're going to use, and I know something's going to happen soon, and I have to get it right. I knew that that would happen. <laughs> that definitely happened on more than one occasion, particularly in the early days. 
where <laughs> but that's but that's like the magic of filmmaking though isn't it that right with those sort of moments that you get lost in and i guess enjoying what's happening in front of you but then also being conscious of what you need to do and to sort of get it right am i right let anybody down yeah yeah well yeah like you know i've been on the sets as well doing something like playback and then stopping playback early and by mistake or uh running it into uh into shot mm. before they've called cut because you've misheard <laughs> something and yes you know you get shouted at but then also it's just yeah. like well, but what are you gonna do was the movie shot on film no it wasn't but i'm glad that you asked that well yeah because i was no, curious oh sorry i just uh, yeah because i was curious because with it being like a low budget film and everything i was curious to see mm. if it was just a and the shot choices if it was just mm. a case of if they were shooting on film, I'm kind of curious to know how much was used and how much mm. harder it would make the shoot if it was, you know, you're, especially if you're shooting outside. But if you shoot yeah. on, uh, digital, then I guess it makes it kind of easier. I think so for this one, yeah. I mean, we, we toyed with the idea of even something like 16 mil um, in the early days of um, pre-production, but we just didn't have the financial resources to do it. We're also working in Tulsa there would be a big turnaround for dailies. And obviously it was because the, the budget was was modest that we would only have, a, we would have a finite number of roles and we had a child actor in 90% of the film. You know, so like you throw all that together and you go, well, maybe it, economically, and it, you know, it doesn't really make sense for this one to be on film. It feels like we need the, the leeway and the flexibility of digital, which we did. We shot on the Alexa Mini, which I've done a lot of work with before. It's a nice small camera package. It creates wonderful images. Because, you know, so much of the film was in tight spaces on location in a set that was practical so we couldn't pull any walls or anything like that, you know. So we tried to downscale as much as we possibly could. So, uh, so no, we, we probably, I mean, the ratio would have been way down compared to a lot of other films that I've done. But no, alas, no film, just digital this time. It's amazing how quickly you can go through film as well. Like, I think I, the first film that I worked on, I think the producer said they went through like equivalent of like 100 miles of, of film mm-hmm. and it's just like it's like i just can't it's just like, i just can't picture something like that um yeah most of it most of it will never be seen most of it will be in a bin somewhere yeah it's perfect mm. perfect for those yeah. winter nights <laughs> to start fires and stuff but yeah. yeah like but it does look beautiful and does have that sort of especially like the outside scenes that sort of like cinematic quality in terms of like that film look in terms of like somebody like terence malick a little bit it has those sort of beauty. It's also like their sort of colors and textural color. moments. Yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. what I meant. But it's also <laughs> like the the use of colors of in the fields and in the forest and even mm. um, like I know it has. It's an eighties sort of. It's set in the eighties, but it doesn't feel mm. like you're in the eighties. If that mm. makes sense, because I yeah. guess before like eighties, it would be a. They have like there's always a certain feel to it, and they have that sort of nostalgia to it. Whilst here, it just felt mm. normal. Yeah, well, I guess, um, well, thank you for saying that. I, um, I'm a huge Terrence Malick fan, you know, Tarkovsky, Kurosawa, Malick, uh, just the way that they use the camera as a storytelling device and don't necessarily rely on exposition and audio and the combination of music and pictures in lots of the films that those people do, I always, I find really fascinating and it always resonates with me. So there's definitely a bit of that in there for sure. It's also, I guess it's one of the reasons why it doesn't, maybe it doesn't feel quite so period. There's not, there's not a lot of other period things in the film. Do you know what I mean? Like we're, we're, as to your point, we're in the trailer for most of the time or we're outside on the land and we go into, into the city once or twice really. 
And um, we're inside for a lot of that. You know, we do a little bit of driving around. But um, there's not that many things, really. There's not that many other characters in the film. There's not that many opportunities to show outside of this family the period in history. So maybe that's part of it. But I, I love how restrained the wardrobe was as well and a lot of the colour choices. I think um, David's wardrobe is fantastic. You know, the cowboy boots and the stripy shirts and all that sort of stuff I think is great. Just adds to his personality and charm in such a lovely way. But, yeah, sorry, that I just trailed off at the end. No, 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 it's fine, it's fine. I'll take, take it. every bit of information. What do you think was the hardest scene to shoot for you? Probably the scene that had the most amount of meetings about it was the barn burning scene because obviously it was a, it was a one and done kind of a deal and we had to shoot it over two different nights because we didn't have enough time with the kid hours uh, to shoot them and then obviously and then do the interior, but obviously prep the interior of the barn to burn down. That had to be done during the day of the second night, if that made sense. So there was initially there was there was a bit of reluctance to do it for real, but I was really I was really apprehensive about trying to pull that off with VFX and and uh, you know a small practical element of fire there. I just thought you know for the, for the emotional climax of the film, I think that it would really benefit the actors to have that in front of them to be able to react to. But also I just think I, I didn't want it to be underwhelming. I wanted the scale of, you know, the loss that these people had to be significant because this is, you know, they put everything in there. They've remortgaged themselves. This, it was this. And then what, you know, if, if this doesn't work out for them, then they're all they have left is themselves, their family, which is ultimately all that really matters. You know, that's one of the takeaways of the film, but I wanted it to be as, as big and impossible to contain as possible, if that makes sense. So we did it over two nights. That was probably the most difficult, probably the most difficult sequence of the film. I, I, it's always kind of fascinating to see how like this sort of scene plays out and everything, but on top of having mm. fire, like there's the smoke and everything, does that make it like really hard for you to light the scene as well? Do you, or you just primarily want to use the fire as your light source so it doesn't look too sort of not necessarily like fake, but as in like a bit hyper real or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Yeah. I did lean on that a lot. I, uh, you know, particularly for close, a lot of the off camera fire stuff I would replicate with lighting and flame bars. So when we don't, when we didn't see the barn burning, but we were looking at the kids in the car or Sunja or David and Monica, I would, I lit that and then used smoke machines and flame bars, et cetera, to kind of help sell that idea. But when, when you're shooting fire, for real, like the interior of that was all controlled burn work. So I just raced in there handheld. I pulled all the lights out of that and just relied on the fire itself and the residual smoke that that created. So that was all, again, just to try and make it feel as real as possible. I just went in there with a mask and um, the actors came in there with, you know, wet rags around their face and all that sort of stuff as much as they could to try and kind of control that. But um, it was pretty, it was hard to see in there and it was confusing and disorienting, which was all done in a safe way. You know, there's obviously fire extinguishers and everything was on propane tanks, so it's all controllable at a minute's notice if we need to turn it off. But I do like how authentic that that scene feels and there's a little desperation to that. And then that sl- that moment where it gets so so smoky that Jacob loses Monica for a second and then all of a sudden, like, the stakes are raised even even higher, you know, because there's, you know, much more of a threat than was than he thought when he was getting in there. So... So yeah, no, I like I do. I was really pleased with that in the end because it took it took quite a lot of convincing to get everybody to do it that way. But I was really happy with how it turned out. What sort of discussions like are uh, involved in convincing people to sort of do the scene that way? It was just it's just an expensive thing to do, and it added another half a day to the schedule. 
which hadn't been budgeted for. And we had to build it to burn down specifically all that sort of stuff, you know, like there was it. So there was a bit of a knock on effect of that. It wasn't just like, you know, cause we had to build the barn anyway, and then we had to make it collapsible. And then, you know, once you throw in special effects and safety and night lighting and, you know, all that sort of stuff, then it just adds up, which, which when you don't have a lot of money or a lot of days is, is sometimes tough to get through, but Isaac really supported me. And, and I just wanted to make sure that we, I, we all gave him the climax that the film deserved at that point. It really does like hit home the sort of idea of family and what's important, especially in yeah. the film. Because you have Jacob chasing that American dream, and he slightly does put well, slightly he does put his like family to the to the side. And yes, it, it's it's interesting to to see as well the sort of like a whole different sort of like culture trying to embed themselves into the sort of like American dream and mm-hmm. uh, chasing gold in over the rainbow. So, like, my penultimate question is, how have you found the reaction to the film and all the sort of uh, awards recognition that it's getting? You know, it's, I mean, I love the script from the get-go. And it was, a uh, we made the film the way that we wanted to make the film. And to see people react to it and love it the way that they are is incredibly satisfying on a professional and a personal level, for sure. I'm so thrilled for Isaac because he's one of the great people of this world. He's such a lovely man. And it means a lot for him. And his story is great. He was borderline giving up on filmmaking and then he made Minari and now it's blown up and, you know, he's got a golden globe. He's, he's gone to the BAFTAs. He might go to the Academy Awards. You know, it's just such a wonderful story for somebody that truly deserves it, who's incredibly humble and compassionate and is just a good human. So on that side of things, I'm thrilled for him. And it's just lovely to be associated with, with a film that people take a lot away from in a, in a good way. You know, I think the message of the film is really wholesome and, and solid, particularly in this day and age where, you know, people are isolated and stuck in different parts of the world. You know, I'm, I'm in America at the moment, my family's in Australia and I, I can't get them over here at the moment because of COVID, you know, so it's, you know, something that brings people together and gives people a bit of a boost at this time, I think is wonderful. When you read online, all the sort of praise it's getting as well, it's, it's really nice to see in terms of reading Isaac's history as well and that he mm. basically wrote it not expecting to make it and just leave it for mm. like his daughter to sort of read and then for it to sort of blow up and even the young child Alan not Alan Kim. yeah just mm-hmm. Alan Kim you see all this sort of stuff online with him and saying that his favorite actor is Sonic and him getting a message from Sonic <laughs> himself great. and just yeah. all those sort of little things. That's awesome, like, isn't it? That's the sort of content we need yeah. right now. And yeah. I think even his, was it his Golden Globe speech where he was like, yeah, just like crying and everything, just like, oh, hits you straight home and everything. Oh, it, and it was, was it either that or the Critics' Choice Awards? Yeah, it's crazy. I think, it I think, was one, I think it? it's a, the Critics' Choice, yeah, apologies. Where he got about halfway through it and then he burst into tears. Yeah, and it's just, oh, so it's cute. Boy, yeah, it? yeah, it's just, that's the sort of like, as I said, that's the content we need right now. And, yeah. Um, but this, you've got to remember, this is such, it was such a small film made by a handful of people, you know, a year and a half ago, almost two years ago now. No, no, none of which in their wildest dreams would have thought that it would be on this stage right now. And nobody shot it with, with those intentions. You know, everybody that came onto this project came on because they loved it. They loved Isaac. They saw something in the story and they wanted to do something good. You know, it's nobody came on to, to this for recognition or awards or anything like that, which is, you know, everybody was, it was a pure 
concept from the get-go, I think, for, for everybody that was involved in this. And there was a real family atmosphere on and off the set. You know, we all hung out together. We'd have meals together. It was wonderful. Your cast, crew, everybody. So it's, it was a lovely experience in the first place. And I don't know if that has anything to do with why people like it, but there was a lot from a lot of people that went into this. So it's wonderful to see people get recognised for sure. I think one of the things that people connect with it is just, I think the way the story is told, the type of story it is, because maybe this is just me, but it feels like some like film is slowly evolving into sort of like franchises and big blockbusters that sometimes like us as audience members and people need those human stories, like human mm. stories more than ever. And 100%. especially like now with like COVID going on, I think you connect more to these sort of human stories and kind mm. of evaluate, not evaluate, but it resonates differently to you and mm. you sort of take more away from it than watching, mm. you know, robots fight for two hours. Don't get me wrong. Right. I love, I love no. watching it sort of thing. <laughs> um, but but I mean, your case in point is also probably a film like Nomadland, which is wonderful, which I really enjoyed, which is doing incredibly well at the moment as well. But that's, it's more, it's almost like a documentary. Do you know what I mean? It feels so observed and found, which I really love about it. But um, to your point, it's like life lessons and reflection and, you know, self-discovery and all those sort of things in that film, which I think are really important now as well. So, yeah, I think that there's something about that, particularly in this time, that people are really desperate for for feeling something again. I don't know if that makes sense. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah, it's been yeah. so hard for so many people for, for 12 months now. I think as well as like you're seeing stories that are not, because I guess in a lot of stuff, as you said, like if you're in a bubble or, you know, in lockdown somewhere or you're with certain people, but when you see these stories of people in the outside world, you I guess you appreciate it more and then you kind mm-hmm. of appreciate like what you're missing. I haven't seen Nomad Lad yet. I don't think that's out until next month in the UK. So mm-hmm. I am looking forward to that and sort of watching yeah, that and sort of like connecting to that. But to lead on to my final question, what's next for you? I'm on Stranger Things now. Be on that for a little while. We got a big hold up because of COVID like everybody else did. So, um, so there's that and I don't know what's after that to tell you the truth few rumors about some things a little bit further down the track but um but it's so hard to pin anything down in this current climate the locations of films are being changed based on how easy or hard it is to shoot there and things are getting pushed all around the place so it's a little unpredictable at the moment so i don't know after after strange things i'm not sure i do you know what i think i have a feeling that i think i know what what might be next but i'm not going to say anything just in case (laughs) just in case it might be true then somebody comes after me you never hear from me again. <laughs> now I'm intrigued, but you will know more than I do if you say what it is, because there isn't. <laughs> well, hold on. Do you know what? I'm going to write it down because this mm. is just audio only. Mm. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> and I think it might be that. I, I knew you were going to say that. that no, at, no, no, I don't think so. But that would be great, would it not? Yes, I reckon once they see a certain other film i think they'll certain other collaborators yeah i think they'll go for it (laughs) and we'll we'll both cross our fingers for that one that would be great all the all the it'll be all good (laughs) everything's good yeah it will uh do you know what i reckon it will happen and once it gets announced i will take ownership of this moment i will yeah (laughs) this is this is where it broke people this is where it broke people don't know but this is where this is where it all became I have not been asked. I'll leave it at that. Yet, yet. 
Don't worry, we'll make a few phone calls. It'll be no problem. <laughs> Lockie, thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure. Great to meet you, Bob. Thanks for the call. It's, um, it's great to have a chat. Good luck yeah. over there. Thank you very much. Yeah, it should be all good. I know we yeah. had a little... Hope everything uh, works out. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I know we had a little therapy session yeah. beforehand talking about my problems. <laughs> Hopefully you don't charge me for yeah. that. But again, thank you so much for joining me. I, I uh, just assume that that's the majority of the interviewers. You'll play that part. Yeah, he'll be like, there you go. Here you go. This is... Yeah. <laughs> well, welcome to the world of Bob. Um, yeah, yeah. No, good luck, mate. I hope it works out. I'm sure you'll, um, I'm sure you'll be fine. I hope, hopefully always, it does. You always think it's worse than it is, you being yeah. the royal you. Yeah, exactly. I'll have a sleepless night and then I'll get in a message the next day being like, yeah, no worries. <laughs> yeah, see you on Monday. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Here's your contract. All right, mate. Uh, take take care. care. Thanks Thank for you call. so much. Great to meet you. Bye-bye. Talk to you later. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe, rate and review this podcast.